0: 94 on Lumpen Radio.
1: Good morning once again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. Today we are going to be talking about a book that is in my hot little hand that you cannot see because this is radio and not television. It is called Lost Empress. It is out now from Pantheon Books, and we are joined live from, I believe, New Jersey by the, from the author, uh, Sergio de la Pava. Sergio, are you with us? I am. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: This is great. So Lost Empress is uh your second novel. Am I correct on that? Third. 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 I'm sorry, third, third because uh, it was uh the first one came out in the University of Chicago Press, right around first 2001? two thousand one? First, first two. two, yeah, yeah. Um, well actually
3: I think you uh, self published the, the first, first novel. Edition. Ex Libris, right? Was self published and then University of Chicago picked it up and I believe, Sergio, you self published the second one as well, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh you know, both my first two novels were initially self published and then uh, brought out um, later on by the
3: University of Chicago. Good for them. Good for the University of Chicago. That's. I actually ran into uh, Joe Peterson. Um, he was a guest on our show a few weeks ago. Is that his last name? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah Joe okay. Peterson, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, he he mentioned uh, how excited they were when they f- when they picked up uh,
1: Naked Singularity. Yeah, it was a great book. I'd actually not connected the two. I I read this book and had not realized that the author of Naked Singularity had written Lost Empress, which shows you where my head's at (laughs) these days. But Sergio, uh, I want to introduce, first of all, the book. And, of course, Sergio, Sergio, you're a public defender, uh, a lawyer as well as an author in uh, the city of New York. I want to get into that a little bit. But Lost Empress is an interesting book. It's a a large book. I would not say it's a – I found it a very fast read, actually. Yes. Yes. I I don't know if – Guys, apparently agree with me. It is a series of interlocked stories uh, that take place around Patterson, New Jersey, uh, as well as Rikers Island, a little bit of Sing Sing, uh, prisons in New York State, uh, as well as uh, Patterson, New Jersey for sports fans. You should know that's where Giant Stadium is and a fictitional football team is uh, the Pork uh, led by a woman who is the sister of the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. She's been, uh, not to put too kind a point on it, screwed out of the ownership of the Dallas Cowboys by by her father and her brother. Uh, and she uh, launches a plan to make an irrelevant uh, franchise in a minor football league uh, into the big time with the help of a young woman who has just been thrust into things because she happened to be in the pl- in the right place at the right time. Uh, I don't want to give too much away, but the stories all are interlocked. They do come together uh, at the ending. But I do want to start, Sergio, this is a, this is a rather large book. Uh, and when I was reading it, it struck me that it was um, owed a debt maybe a little bit to the works of Kingsley Amis and maybe to David Foster Wallace. And I wanted to start there and talk about the structure of the book. What led you to start with a series of narratives uh, that came apart to kind of pull together at the, the very end of the book?
2: I think I initially uh, um, wanted to contrast this notion of professional football, which in this country is probably you know pretty much the apex of mass entertainment or one of them anyway, and, con- um, and maybe juxtapose that with um, this country's program of mass incarceration or imprisonment. so uh, that was kind of the genesis of the idea. what happens is when, once you kind of start all those. Things tend to fall by the wayside, and you just follow some kind of invisible dream like, um, you know, igniter that just keeps you going. But the, certainly at the outset, the notion was to juxtapose these to, you know, conventional, let's call it underdog sports narrative with uh, an examination of what imprisonment or incarceration is.
1: That's interesting because, of course, football has been. I, I actually am a former sports writer. Uh, I think this show may be the least listened to at the moment because the World Cup final happens to be going on yeah. during our, our air <laughs> slot. Uh, uh, France is currently leading Croatia 2-1. to one. That's a public service from Jamie Trecker. Uh, but it, it's interesting because uh, I really personally enjoyed uh, the Nina Gill. She's the character that, that runs oh, the yeah. pork. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed her character, and I really enjoyed your take on sports. I have to ask. Uh, I, I know that you're a lawyer. I assume you're a sports fan, but do you have any professional experience in the sports field? Because some of the stuff you talked about was was very astute. And as a former kind of inside guy, uh, I, I had I thought it was very resonant.
2: I'm just like a very big sports fan. I don't know how intellectually defensible that is, and, but it's just an undeniable fact. And I've been probably an NFL fan since I was you know 10 years old, and. You know the interesting thing about sports, unlike other industries, or you want to call it, is that you know the, the innards of it are pretty, pretty widely available. Unlike uh, you know other industries where I would not be, know where to start. Uh, just as as a brief example, for example, we we tend, we can if we w- we're if we are curious enough, we can know what any NFL player makes for a living, um, which is you know fundamentally odd if you think about it. I, I couldn't really. Um, it's not easily accessible to find out, you know, the salary of 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 the most most people. So I think what comes across as you know maybe insider knowledge is really just extreme fandom and um, just existing in America, where the NFL is covered pretty uh, pretty
3: circumspectly. Sergio, I'll add to this. This is. Probably one of the shows that you'd be on, where everybody's football fans. Well, we're all sports guys on this show. Um, I want to. You're, you're not from New Jersey, though. You're from Queens, is that correct? I just want to make sure we have that. I'm
2: from New Jersey. I I live in Jersey. I've I've lived in Brooklyn. I work in Manhattan. Um,
3: okay. I just you know, want to make sure we
2: if you're not here, Jersey is basically just the where I live in Jersey is basically just a suburb of of New York City. Um, so there's not this huge distinction between the two um, in the area where I live.
3: Okay, I just want to make sure we didn't misquote where you lived. I thought you lived in Queens for some reason, but because
1: uh, that's where the Mets
3: are. Everybody, everybody thinks that everybody's from Queens because the Mets. Yeah, you are. are you uh,
1: I just want to ask <laughs> you. Two. Queens is Mets and airport. That's right, Mets and. And I'm a former New Yorker, so that's. Uh, okay, I'm a good. Mets and Jets fan, so.
3: Are you a uh, Giants or Jets? Well, I'm guessing you're a Giants fan because you're talking about the Tyree catch.
2: I'm neither. I'm actually a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. Oh, so all, right. all right, all right.
3: And all right.
2: and I'm ashamed to admit that that's basically a front runner syndrome. Around the time I started watching football was when the Steelers were kind of uh, dominant and mean Joe Green and Steel so on. Kirk that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I don't think you can blame a 9-year-old for just kind of adopting whatever is most
3: famous at the moment. Yeah, I was. I grew up with the Lions. Unfortunately, my grandfather had season tickets for his entire adult life, and we saw one playoff win, and there hasn't been one since then in 1992. So well, yeah. I uh, bet New Yorkers can the, blame New York. Probably it,
2: one of the few NFL teams that hasn't even been to a Super Bowl. Am I right about that? That is absolutely correct. Sorry I think it's the That's Lions true. and
3: the Browns yeah. are the last two. So. Well, of the, yeah, the Browns. The Browns yeah,
2: the, right. Yeah, the Browns have a few NFL championships, whatever, whatever they're called at the time. Yeah, of course. The Browns. The
1: yeah, Browns are in the, the Baltimore Ravens, though. Really, if you yes. think about it. I mean, so let's be real here. <laughs> That's mean. Uh, it is mean, but it's also <laughs> true. Uh, um, you know, long-suffering Jets fan here. I got to take my shots where I can. Um, the other, th- it's interesting that you link football to mass incarceration, and you do that very uh, explicitly because, of course, there are so many stories about football right now with head injuries with CTE. With uh, suicide, Junior Seau, of course, killed himself uh, very famously uh, after suffering CTE. There have been a number of. Aaron Hernandez comes to mind, obviously the the New England Patriots guy who murdered people and was killed in jail, committed suicide in jail, did he not as well? Yes, and he Uh, also his brain looked like Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese. So it's interesting. I I know you're a public defender. Could you take us a little bit through that because those passages in the book uh, also, I mean that that. Obviously, was insider knowledge. This is something you deal with every day. So I wondered if you could just take us through a little bit about your feelings on that. We've had—it's uh, interesting because we had Myra Case in the show a little while ago. She works in the Denver prison system, reading with prisoners uh, as part of the Open Prisons Project. Um, could you take us through a little bit about you know what your feelings are on the current state of mass incarceration in America? Because it's obviously something that's that's very critical to our society at the moment.
2: You know, in a, in a nutshell, for a very complex topic, you know, with mass incarceration, you're talking about in this country. In around 1973, there was about, you know, give or take, 200,000 people incarcerated. Today, there's over 2 million, um, and the United States incarcerates like a higher percentage of its population than just about any country, if not any other country. So it's you're, you're talking about a widespread civil rights abuse. It's, uh, in my opinion, the the number one civil rights issue this country's facing at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I could say a lot more about that. What I tried to do, maybe, is just organically, in the in the sense of a long, complex, at times comic narrative, um, just maybe bring it from a different angle. Come in from a different angle, maybe a subterranean. Um, way of viewing these issues. So one of the main characters is at Rikers Island. You spoke about Queens. Rikers Island is in Queens. It's a pretty, probably the most infamous jail in our country. And, you know, the, one of the main characters is, is incarcerated there throughout the, pretty much the entirety of the book. Um, I don't know what more I could say about it other than, you know, I think it's become the responsibility of every American citizen to educate themselves at least a little bit on, the, on this issue um because it's it's um uh, it's a human rights abuse that is just ongoing and shows no signs of abating
3: that that brings me to my next well statement and then question but you know it, i thought this book you know particularly with nina the um, the setting up the heist um you know being running a, a professional sports franchise um you know i i think it for me, anyway, when I when I read the novel, it was really about power and power structures in the United States, and you know, absolutely.
2: Pr- I, I mean, I think you're you're dead on when you say that. Uh, I think more than even race or um, what what we are confronted with with things like the NFL mass incarceration is the power structure and the powerful exploiting the powerless over and over and over in the history of this country. Um, So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's very gratifying to hear that because I I do think that you know power and money and wealth and is is a central concern. And
3: And, please feel free to interrupt. We want to hear you, not we hear ourselves all the time. So please don't (laughs) don't apologize. (laughs) But you know, moving moving forward on that topic too is just you know I I think we do talk about race in this country, particularly you know now we're in the middle of some of the craziest political times in my lifetime anyway i'm in my late 40s but you know one thing we don't talk about is power you know what you said power versus the powerless and we have a lot of people in this country you know that regardless of race you know are powerless in the system and we have um you know basically the wealthy continue to get wealthier you know we're we're stacking the supreme court business friendly you know taking away the rights of workers and people you know and it's it just it just continues and, and and it's almost like a, you know some kind of reverse samsara you know it's like this corporate structure that runs everything just gets bigger and bigger and and more powerful no matter who's president or who you know and uh i think i'm mumbling out out of my ears right now but it's just you well know.
0: I, I wanted to add something to that um i thought it was interesting the way a lot of the wealthy wealthier characters were portrayed um. as negligent or ignorant um, a lot of the time. And uh, I think working class people, we, we sometimes think because a class is wealthy or certain people are wealthy that they're more intelligent. And I wanted to know if those character portrayals, Sergio, were from... Um, seething internal anger or from external experience you know there's there's Um, go ahead go ahead
2: almost everything i do uh, stems from anger and i'm ashamed to admit but um Uh,
0: don't be i think
2: when you say this thing about the negligence of the rich there's a section in the book in which dia who's you know a recent college grad working for Nina, who's a billionaire basically or at least has access to billions Um, where, you know, Dia's kind of afraid to bring up the fact that she hasn't been paid or, like, what her salary is going to be. And it's not that that Nina Gill is actively uh, conspiring against Dia. It's that she has no conception of what it means to literally need money to keep your phone on. Um, So I'm in the position where every day I go to a public defender office in Manhattan and I'm confronted with people who, when I ask them why they didn't come to court, they can truthfully answer that they didn't have the money for the subway fare, um, which is uh, currently, I believe, two dollars and seventy-five cents, and they are not lying. So I, every day, I'm confronted with this incredible uh, dichotomy and gap. Uh, when you're talking about Manhattan, you're talking about the, I would guess, the richest real estate in the country. But I see everyday people who, you know, can't afford to go to McDonald's during the lunch break. So. It's hard not to get angry at something like that. Um, and that's not to demonize any particular section of people. It's more a question of, you know, certain segments of our society are privileged to not have to think about these things. And then, unfortunately, they decide they will not think about these things. So when we talk about the power versus the powerless, and you see a campaign to take the defenseless and then deny them basic human, you know, dignities like health care which is just mind-boggling that you would make that your platform, but as you look and you read up on these things and you follow our political situation even remotely, you see basically a desire on the part of some people to make the defense even more vulnerable, which is hard to fathom, um, but it's hard to draw any other conclusion.
1: It's a it's a very, it's a real cruelty, unfortunately, that we are seeing right now at the top of our our political structure. Uh, it is it is kind of an incalculated cruelty. It's abusive. I mean it, it is. Yeah. I
2: think at one point there was, with respect to Obamacare, there was a, a you know a revelation that somebody had said, "Oh, if you if you give them health care, you'll never be able to take it back." Yeah, <laughs> that was Mitch McConnell. Nature, yeah. You know, this is like pre-2016 but if if they get health care you'll never be, if we promise them health care they'll never be able to get that back think about the kind of warped soul you have to be to, <laughs> to, to use that as some kind of political calculation um, and when we talk about the poor in this country you know I, I think the the powerful people in this country have been able to do a good job of characterizing them as kind of like lazy the vast majority of Poor people in the United States are children who, who cannot, you know, raise themselves up by their bootstraps. It's a 10-year-old girl or, you know, but they've done a great job of setting the narrative and creating the stereotypes that suit their positions, but that are not in any way based on reality.
1: Well, this is a good time to break. You mentioned Dia. Uh, we actually have some readings from your book, and we want to play it so the people that list, listening to the show can actually hear what your book's about. So we're going to take a little excerpt right here. This is introducing the, the character of Dia. It is from uh, Sergio De La Pava's book, The Lost Empress. So we'll be right back after this short little break.
4: in 1969, was Joni Mitchell's second album, and along with the following years, Ladies of the Canyon, which Dia is only now beginning to dip a mental toe into, represents the first of several significant steps heavenward by this consummate artist. The experience of listening to these two albums is, for Dia, startling. To begin with, she listens to little else during that time. More than that, really, all other music seems oddly inappropriate, almost as if it were simulation. The two albums are, above all, genuine. Their authenticity emerges from the speakers with hypnotic grace. Dia has not heretofore been a connoisseur of notes, mostly just listened to whatever the radio deemed worthy of audition. Only now it is beginning to dawn on her what a grave error this has been. Not that she's engaged in a clinical dissection of keys and modes and theory, just her almost reptilian response to visceral pleasure. A response that pretty quickly developed an anticipatory element which element only enhances the pleasure whenever that anticipation is musically sated. That relates to enjoying the purely musical elements. The next level of appreciation involves the language. With this kind of music, closer inspection of the lyrics is almost uniformly where a listener's enjoyment starts to decrease precipitously, with the realization that the actual content and shadings of the words being employed are often atrociously inane, if not sheer doggerel. But with Joni, even this early, the opposite happens. Here, examination of the lyrics only deepens the awe. The melodious words have worked their way into Dia with seamless significance and with a weight that's almost shaped, or at least reshaped, by her actions. Dia is 21, but maybe she should stop allowing other people to determine the significance of that fact. A mind has no age, only periods and levels of activation. Nothing is one-sided, really. But active propulsion is required to behold the entire multidimensional geometry of an examined shape. Because one way to acquire wisdom is through the osmotic accumulation of what many years bring, but one can also just will oneself into it in a sense. So a 21-year-old can mentally posit what it will be like to experience the relentless revolution of the wheel of life as it cycles you in and out of focus. Contemplate what obligations arise or don't out of the various ways people connect with each other, intentionally or otherwise. Try to pin down exactly what it is about material reward that complicates, maybe even innervates, otherwise salutary pursuits. In short, in this body of work, Dia is not so much learning or discovering something novel as she is experiencing the sensation of a pre-existing phenomenon being aptly named about which Dia knew next to nothing previously, creating a weird mental stew that feels like a rebirth during those rare moments when she can reflect a bit. Like when she's lying in bed and the nameless, faceless prick upstairs deigns to suffer a respite in his constant percussive treading on her ceiling.
1: And that was a reading from Lost Empress by Sergio de la Pava. introducing Well, not introducing, but a, a pretty interesting introduction to me, at least. That's why I chose it, of the character of Dia and a discussion of Joni Mitchell's album, Clouds. Uh, music this week by Do, uh, Dos Santos. And, of course, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, as always. There'll be more readings coming up in the show. Sergio, I just wanted to, to go back and discuss uh, that little passage. Uh, Joni Mitchell's albums make uh, several appearances there, which I found to be very interesting. <laughs> Did amusing. you guys listen to Joni Mitchell this week? I, I, I did listen know. to Joni Mitchell uh, <laughs> Was there a reason you chose that as a motif? Are you a Joni Mitchell fan? i was just curious on that
0: I don't
2: think fan is a sufficient word for what I am with <laughs> Okay, Joni Mitchell. okay. Um, So that, that, that was kind of organic um, in terms of picking her I, I don't quite remember the genesis of that whole aspect of the book other than I think that Joni Mitchell is one of the supreme artists of our time and you know the relationship between an artist their art and those who consume it is um... A long-standing obsession of mine so it, it felt natural and organic to include those those elements
0: you know in the, in the beginning of the show Sergio Jamie mentioned uh, your work being similar to Kings Leonis and David Foster Wallace I thought of a lot of books actually um, that this novel reminded me of. Um, you mentioned the man without qualities somewhere in the book. Nuno mentions it. The character Nuno from a Richard yeah. translation. Yeah, he has so in great? the German <laughs> and the tunnel in the in the original untranslated. Spanish. Untranslated. Right. Uh, yeah, untranslated.
3: untranslated. Sorry.
0: Because yeah, translations are for pansies. Well, that's not the word he uses, but right. That's the word, the word we can we can use. Uh, everything matters. This book reminded me of that, at least in its structure. Remember that book by Ron Curry Jr.? Yes, yes. The Instructions by Adam Levin, Chicago author. A lot of the anger in this book and the um, Supreme Intelligence reminded me of that book. Um, of course, there's the under... I feel like uh, Patterson, the the long poem or series of poems by William Carlos Williams, that kind of underlies a lot of the book. Uh, J.R. by William Gaddis. How much... Do you how m- much of contemporary authors do you read, or do you stick to pretty much classics?
2: You know, um, you know, I would say it depends on how immersed I am in writing. When I'm writing, I'm not, you know, I become a delinquent reader, unfortunately. Um, and then what happens is, you know, maybe immediately following uh, the completion of a of a novel, then I become a, a bit more of a voracious reader, and I'm not a lot more open. To, to reading contemporary authors Which is kind of the state I'm in right now I really should be working on a novel But instead I'm just you know, reading And, and uh, Who you reading? at the risk of sounding like a pretentious jerk or Thinking and maybe trying to get into a particular state That's required for me to, to get back to work um, So the short answer is It depends on when you ask me And right now I, I am trying to uh, fill some of the gaps In my novelistic oh. education, I guess
1: What are you reading right now?
2: You know, I just, of course, I just read a book that is about physics and is not about, is not literate, it's not a novel. It's called What is Real? Um, and it's it's about this very fascinating controversy centered around quantum physics and what's uh, often called the Copenhagen interpretation. Yep. I think the main thing it's brought up for me, besides, I mean, I'm a, you know, uh, by the way, for your listeners, France just scored to go 4-1 um Thank i you. i'm fascinated <laughs> by the way in which certain incorrect narratives take hold and um not just in theoretical physics but you know just in in, in human history at large and this in this book brings up a you know one in the context of theoretical physics which i've always been it's
0: f- interested in well the title of your first book is make it
3: singularity
1: yeah, yeah that,
0: that's yeah. from that's a physics term, right?
1: Yeah,
3: it is. And then we had the theorist, too, which I wanted to ask you. Yeah, yeah, um, we should talk about the theorist. Uh, did you want to go? Ahead? Uh,
0: well, there's a, there's a section of the book where Nuno DeAngelis, one of the main characters of the book who is the character spending time in Rikers Island uh, is checked into Bellevue Hospital for uh,
1: uh, mental illness. and Intransigence, see, I believe, is actually what he was checked in there for. Okay. <laughs> no, no us. Yeah, yeah. Just basic intransigence. Yeah.
0: And there's another patient there, or someone posing as a patient that they call the theorist, and the theorist has these long monologues, basically where he he he's teaching theoretical physics to Bellevue patients. Yeah,
2: that's a you know it's based on facts. No,
0: I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I d- I know Jeremy and I had a little bit of a hard time. Following um, the theories on time and space, can you talk a little bit about your interest in theoretical physics and, and uh, maybe give us some some keys?
3: And I'd like, yeah, and then you had the tie-in, and uh, I was, you know, you were talking about, so there was, I'm just going to give a quick, there was a Super Bowl, and one of the New York Giants made this insane catch um, named Tyree, and then you also talked about Jolly's catch, um, and, the, and, and it was tied in with through the theorists. And I, I got a little lost on... Our, now, was the, does the theorist actually believe that there were alternate Super Bowls, or was it tied in together? I'm, I'm not a physics guy at all, in fact, my science and math are very lacking, so if you wouldn't mind giving us just a little uh, sure, yeah, help with that. So,
2: so I think what the theorist is, is claiming is just as there are different dimensions to space, so we recognize there are th- that there are three dimensions to space, right? um... that there are multiple dimensions of time uh... which is actually something that some theoretical physicists believe now the, the fact of the matter is you can get some theoretical physicists to believe just about anything <laughs> so this isn't, you know, I'm not saying that as some kind of great um... empirical support for that position but um, just as there are multiple dimensions of space there could be multiple dimensions of time the theorist is claiming that at the moment as he is speaking to those patients in Bellevue, that there are two main dimensions of time. Um, In short, one of them would be the dimension of time in which the reader is existing, and hence the reference to David Tyree, which we as readers recognize as an actual thing that occurred, I think, in 2008. Um, If you're a football fan, it's a rather famous catch that occurred in, in the Super Bowl between the Giants and the Patriots. So when he says that he is aware of this, but none of his... Uh, listeners in Bellevue are that's our clue that he's referring to our timeline when he mentions Tyree when he mentions Jolly and we don't know what he's talking about that's because he's referring to something that occurred in his timeline meaning Nuno D'Angelo's, Dia Nouveau Nina Gill's timeline okay and that's why we don't recognize that it. it doesn't make sense in our world um, the theorist is, is in a privileged position to exist, both have existed both in our timeline and in the timeline of the book. I hope that kind of like Schrodinger's
3: cat, so to speak. That's yeah, that completely cleared it up. So,
2: so he's like a weird kind of time traveler in that he knows um, our timeline, but he also uh, is intimately involved in the timeline in which Lost Empress takes place. And he explicitly says, "Listen, there's a lot of things in which both of our timelines agree." For example, the existence of Joni Mitchell, the existence of something called the NFL <laughs> yeah. et cetera, but there are places in which it diverges right. and so it is it is probably a little difficult uh, but i I was very careful to make sure that that if you know minutely um, examined that it would hold up and i and I think it does
3: no it does absolutely I'm just one of those people that needs things explained to me, so yeah. On that and note, and I wrote it, and I'm not sure I understand.
1: Well, <laughs> okay. well, we know the time traveler is, is known uh, knows about the helmet catch, uh, so right. there we go. Uh,
2: so what he's, you know, ultimately what it emerges is that he very much wants to leave the timeline of the book and return to our timeline where his wife is. Uh.
0: And I think we could tell
1: readers there's a neck catch in the book. There is never seen that. There's, there's <laughs> yeah, that.
2: so um,
0: yeah, yeah, a, lot yeah a lot of things
1: happened. A lot of things. Hey, with that we do have to take a break and remind people of the folks that help pay for the station. Uh, after the break we are actually going to come out into another reading from this book Lost Empress. Sergio, just hang on a few minutes and we'll be right back to you. And I want to remind everybody that you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio and I94.
4: Okay. Let's try it your way. We're here to get a strong safety. You say we should go back to the office and just pick a current NFLer. So who do you want? I don't know. Earl Thomas, Bird, Ward. Oh really? Guys with NFL contracts that pay them half a mil a game? I know, but those contracts aren't currently in effect. They're in work stoppage, right? Can't we guarantee them a certain significant amount of money and then just throw in a clause that if the NFL resumes, Our contract automatically becomes null and void, and they can go back to making much more? Legally, yes. Problem is contracts need to be signed in reality, and in that place, no one like that will sign. Why not, though? Is some money no longer better than zero money? What do you think the NFL is, Dia? What I think it is? A professional sports league, what else? A lot else. Huh? True enough that it's a league, but it's a league unlike any other in the world. So much so, it's more like a shadowy cabal, really. Oh, come on. What are you talking about? What part? All of it, starting with you saying it's like no other league. What about the NBA, NHL, etc.? okay in terms of revenue and popularity the nfl isn't far from being the equal of those two and the mlb combined start with the money which in case you didn't know is pretty much where you start with everything 10 billion in yearly revenue that they'll admit to even more significantly the nfl is the only game in town in a way those other leagues aren't realize that with the slight exception of canada no other place in the world has the slightest interest in playing this stupid sport Contrast that to soccer, basketball, hockey, and baseball for that matter. Think of being a human with this very specific skill set. You can execute at a high level only a very specific series of motor tasks that have relevance in exactly one country and is valued by precisely one employer. True of any sport, right? No. If you're a basketball player, you almost certainly want to play in the NBA, but guess what? If that doesn't work out, you can always go play in Greece, Italy, Spain, Turkey, China. Go try and make a living playing American football in China. Japanese baseball, Russian hockey, every other sport offers global opportunities to its specialists. So what's the significance of that? Power. Power to go with the money. Power because of the money. Money because of the power. Who can tell anymore? Bottom line is the Earl Thomases of the world end up needing the NFL a hell of a lot more than the other way around. Fine. But where does the cabal come in? It comes in when absolute power does what it does. Throw in an antitrust exemption, tax-exempt, and non-profit status that was granted in 1942, but now no one, including the IRS, can find the original application. An outsized cultural cash, mostly due to its suitability to gambling, that functions as a license to steal from local government tax bases, and the NFL starts to seem almost magnanimous when it, all it does is something like lie about concussions for decades while backed by studies it paid good money for. Gross. l. Believe me, there's a lot more where that came from. I know, I was there. That's terrible. Who do you think owns these teams, anyway? Better stated, how do you think you get to the point where you can afford one? But what's the significance of that to us? You're seeing the significance. No prominent NFL player, no agent really, is going to do anything that risks pissing off the douches who sign those heavy checks.
1: And that was a reading from Sergio de la Pava's Lost Empress. And you, of course, are listening to I 94 right here on Lumpen Radio, WLPNLP Chicago. And we were talking before the break with Sergio about uh, power and money. And that was actually why I selected that passage. It really does kind of bring it all home. Uh, and I know, Mike, you had a question directly yeah. related to that. Yeah. Um,
0: Sergio, I wanted to know if you thought of your novel as a work of protest. And, and if you did or do. How effective do you think a novel can be as protest?
2: I do think of it as a protest, which is why I put that on a heading under the under the title. But I think that protest can take many forms, and, and there's the kind of stereotypical march or rally centered around a particular issue, and. I think Lost Empress functions in that capacity on some minor level, but I also think that there's a sense in which, and I'm not trying to get too deep here because it's difficult in this format, but there's a sense in which everything we do, everything humanity does, that in some sense fights against the alienation coldness is a protest, Um, even if it's just a protest against our limited time on Earth. It's a, a protest against the fact that we have a limited time um, with which to do things. Yeah. So I, I was looking for an expansive use of that, that word, protest. How effective can a novel be? Um, unfortunately, I think you guys probably know as well as anyone that, you know, the novel
1: yeah,
0: currently
2: is is not the biggest mainstream object. It's, it's more of a, call it a counterculture or... Um, in in some sense external force on our society it's it's lost a lot of prominence so I don't know that you know um, a novel could have the effect that it might have had 50 years ago where Uh it it says to a society you're sick and (laughs) here's the reason and here's the proof and now respond to that Um, I wish that were true I'm just not and I'm I'm a little pes- I don't like to be pessimistic I'm a little pessimistic about
0: that particular claim mm. um and another question i had was if whether or not you've been approached by any magazines or anything for journalistic work you have a you have a really great eye for detail um this no nonsense attitude and um, at least in your writing and in a in a really broad knowledge base and it, it seems like it would translate really really well to Long-form uh, magazine work.
2: You know, I do get approached to do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, to do some nonfiction. The truth is, I'm, you know, I have this entire other legal career life, um, which often, or at least enough times, causes me to, you know, write nonfiction pieces talking about various issues. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a great deal of interest in in journalism or oh, nonfiction. Okay. So I generally just say no. Okay, okay. that's interesting. Now, if somebody, uh, you know, I'll I'll borrow your Airways to say, if somebody wants to. Uh, pay me to search out Joni Mitchell and, and do
1: a feature on her, I, I'm, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Joni Mitchell, we'll keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, uh, it's interesting, I kind of wanted to go uh, back to that for a second because um, I, I did notice that through long passages of the book, particularly w- dealing with uh, incarceration in jails, there is an incredible attention to detail here. And what the question I had for you actually was, given your feelings on mass incarceration and given the, the, your day in and day out life, was this stuff extremely kind of difficult for you to write uh, and get down?
2: It's, it's a form of translation um, in the sense that I'm trying to translate these things that those of us in the progressive criminal justice community feel and know and experience that I'm trying to in essence translate it for the the outsider who may not um, view these issues with any kind of urgency mm-hmm. so it feels like translation so and translations difficult translations hard right. um, more difficult than just um, you know straight exposition for example right. so yeah because you're you're wearing two hats you're saying I, I don't I, I'm I don't want to just say things that everybody else is saying i don't want to um overwhelm somebody with insider detail that maybe will get you know somehow lost so yeah it is it is difficult but you know truth is anytime i'm at the keyboard i find it difficult so
3: Sergio do you read uh or have you read any of the old uh, prison writers like Eddie Bunker or Malcolm Browley, any of those guys did you ever read any of the um you know they were around I know Eddie Bunker was in Reservoir Dogs. He wrote that book, Dog Eat Dog, and Animal Factory. They made movies out of those. And Brawley wrote uh, on the Yard. Have you ever read any of those guys? I, ha-
2: I have not read those books, but I mean, I'll definitely seek them out. Um, there's a sense in which you know I, I live this stuff so intimately on a daily basis sure. that it becomes right. difficult to come home and then read about it more.
3: No. So, but I mean, I'll definitely check that stuff out. yeah, I work at the public too. I work in a public library here in Chicago, and we probably deal with some of the same issues I'm sure um, some of the same people too yeah from absolutely <laughs> um, my second question well, it's probably my fifteenth question, but my second question of this <laughs> segment um, the inmate rule book um, that you have is that real?
2: Well, it's real that there's an inmate rule book
3: okay
4: and, in,
2: and and I would say that uh, it's its own fictional entity, okay. but it's not coming from left field. Let's put it that way.
3: Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Does that actually uh, have a picture? The actual
2: a- one is a lot longer.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't
2: know who they expect. Uh, you know, I guess you know they're thinking you got you got nothing else to do, pal. You're in Rikers Island. Here's re- here read this uh, eighty put eighty page manual.
1: And then mm-hmm. so they actually do give it to inmates to read.
2: Not sure if they give it to them, but it's available.
3: Okay. Just like legal help or the legal library. Uh,
2: it's more like, he, here's here's the rules, pal. Gotcha,
3: yeah. gotcha. So Love that really later like on,
2: you can't say you didn't know. I that see. would be my guess, that it's uh, more cynical than trying okay. to inform anybody.
3: I see. I was just, I, uh, then I'm then i guessing the picture of the gun that says NYC Department of <laughs> yeah, Correction. That, that's that, definitely that, fiction. That's your, that <laughs> your take? <laughs> the, the,
2: uh, the <laughs> The periods are bullets. I don't yeah, know if you yeah. caught that.
3: Yeah. Yes, well, I actually, when I when I was reading the novel, I, I saw that. and I'm like, if this is real, this is absolutely <laughs> crazy. <laughs> no, uh,
2: no. Sometimes fiction is stranger than truth.
3: Yes. Um, I, I want to bring up another thing too. Um, you were talking about uh on page three eleven where you were talking about how the NFL um doesn't really translate to other sports. Um, I'll just read. I'm gonna read two paragraphs real quick if you don't mind it says uh, contrast that to soccer or basketball hockey or baseball for that matter think of being a human with this very specific skill set you can execute at a high level only a very specific series of motor tests that have relevance in exactly one country and is valued by precisely one employer yeah. now you know you look at and then it goes into talk about sports in other countries and you know we of course we have the World Cup going on right now, and, and it's four to two, by the way. Four yeah, to two, yeah. Thing. France is whooping, um, and uh, you know, baseball's taken off in other countries, but football, you know, aside from the Canadian Football League, but I think most of those guys are Americans anyway, is a very specific thing. And 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 when we're talking about um, power and abuses, you know, this, so you have guys that can, you know, maybe. Some guys play, you know, you got like Jerry Rice, who was like untouchable. But, you know, a lot of these guys' careers now, especially since they're so big and they hit so hard, and you're looking at five years and you're destroying your body. Um, and I think that's something to be looked at. You know, I, again, I'm a huge fan of the sport. And look, even with the camera angles now, you can see these guys' faces. Like, uh, we had, uh, of course, you might remember <laughs> Jay Cutler, who got hit quite a bit. Mm. A, you know, they would have a camera directly on his face, and he'd get, you know, speared by somebody, and, like, you'd just see, like, his face like, slow motion. And sometimes yeah. it's really hard to watch.
2: Oh, and with Jay Cutler, they'd be like, ah, he's soft.
3: Yeah, right. yeah.
2: Soft. I mean, yeah, yeah no soft. Defi- yeah, even no the line softest thinking. NFL player is still tougher than anybody you know. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. Guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, that guy got sacked by the Giants nine times in one half and finished the game. So, I mean. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, if, I
2: know. I mean, I, I, I get what they're saying when they say that kind of things like that about Jay Cutler. And you see this in boxing, too. They would call yeah. Oscar De La Hoya. His nickname was Chicken. Was, right. Listen, if he was that chicken, I doubt he'd get in a ring. And yeah. Fight. yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, there's that dehumanizing aspect of it when you're watching and you just want a particular result. You're not, if you're a big Chicago Bear fan and you just want them to win, yeah. you know, Jay Cutler's health, you know, 10 years from now, I'm, you just don't care. And, you don't and think about it. I'm not I'm it. saying that to defend it. I'm saying that's the dehumanizing process of something like the NFL, where you know I get what you're saying about concussions, but you know what? It's Sunday, and the Steelers really need this one. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then you just scream, you find yourself screaming inhuman things like, "Come on, get up, you can do this," you know. Right. And so, I, I it's true. The NFL is 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 really its own category in terms of of, you know, wildly successful global league and that, you know, I travel a lot and if I'm, you know, if I'm a Latin American, I pull, if I pulled out a football, they'd be like, what the hell is that thing? And if <laughs> I tried to throw it to someone, they wouldn't know how to throw it. They wouldn't know how to catch it, which is kind of what I was getting at. Uh, you know, you, you, you drop a soccer ball anywhere in the world or, you know, people kind of get it. But there's just this weirdness of this sport. Um, in terms of the physical skills that have to be acquired, that you then really only have one place to showcase them, you know, in any meaningfully remunerative way. Right.
1: We only have about five minutes left in our show, so I, I did want to actually back up to one thing that we talked about earlier. Uh, you mentioned that you didn't think that novels had the same kind of cultural currency uh, as they once did, which I think is an interesting point. We've talked a lot in the show about, things that that do move the needle. We've talked about classics that have obviously had an impact. It strikes me that today that the the culture has gone more toward television and uh, particularly uh, serialized dramas that are popular on Netflix or HBO and stuff like that. Have you done any kind of writing or are you planning on doing any kind of writing for television or film or, or are you trying to get your books into that other medium to expand the reach of the protest?
2: There's a very real sense in which those mediums are my enemy. Because mm-hmm. I believe in kind of uh, slow, intricate storytelling that's not pandering in any way. Right. Um, and that's really all I see on television. I mean, I watch these things. I binge-watch pretty much any show you can bring, you know, The Breaking Bad, etc. Um, it doesn't take long to see that they're not really the equivalent of novels, as, as you know, 8 million thing pieces would have you believe. Um, it, it's not anywhere near the experience of, of you know, reading Anna Karenina or To the Lighthouse or Invisible Man. It just isn't. It's a lot baser. It's a lot less intelligent. And this is not to say they're not good television shows. It's just that television shows don't rise to the level of novels. Um, good novels. There are television shows that are better than a bad novel, but there's no television show that can reach the height of the works I'm talking about. And um, and so for that reason no i'm not interested in joining the slew of writers who are you know trying to sell you a tv show
3: amen amen to that we're big big novel fans of the novel here and
2: yeah d- there's still a lot of us man you know mm-hmm. I, mean, yeah. when I say that it's lost the centrality of the culture that's un- an unfortunate fact but the truth is i ain't all that concerned with centrality in the culture when i sit down to write i'm, I'm concerned with something eight million other things and you know that's not one of them
3: that's that's fantastic to hear well, it's interesting you know jamie and mike and i all met jamie was a patron at my library and, and i knew he ran the radio station i was like we should start a book show and we're all you know mike's a, works in a grill he flips burgers and we're all avid readers and like when we did this like my dad's a union electrician i wanted to show my dad could listen to and he wouldn't be like what is all this garbage i don't understand you know like <laughs> my dad's not a dumb person he's very smart but he's not an academic you know and uh that's I've, I've read a little bit about you I, I loved your biography where you said that sergio de la pava was not from brooklyn um <laughs> those we talk about this a lot on the show but those like artists or waitresses or bartenders making it in brooklyn stories you know if i never read another one of those i see him at the library all the time and it's and i just want to tell you like what you're doing I, you know I can't speak for the rest of the public but I'm behind you hundred percent and I, I absolutely love your work so
2: thanks man I really appreciate that you know and you know to those of us who love the novel and then are fortunate enough to have been given even a, even a limited platform to put them out in the world that there's not that's, that's majestic stuff man and I, and I'm sorry breaking bad doesn't compare to it I, I, you know I, I will and it's all about relativism and you can believe what you want and I can believe what I, I'm just right when I say that you know <laughs> invisible man is Orders of magnitude better than Breaking Bad.
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with that. And I'm okay.
2: And I, and I just, that's just true. It is true. Sorry
1: it is true well we have been speaking today with Sergio de la Pava he is the author of Lost Empress it is out now from Pantheon Books we're going to actually let him have the last word we're going to play out with a final selection from his book Sergio thank you so much for joining us today we really really appreciate it Uh, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this if you guys are interested you can always check out this book of course at your local library Uh, one public service announcement I-94 will be back of course on Thursday live this time for Pills and Community Books at the Dial we're talking about the novel The Cliff Dwellers and we'll be back next Sunday with the author Janice Law that will be a live show right here it's Packed House on 94 Sergio once again for all of us at I-94 Thank thanks you. so much for joining us buddy
2: thanks guys it was a blast take care you
3: too
4: where this week's long strategy falls apart is the day a randomly overheard piece of music pierces through all that it's not even good music The song is heart and soul, but not one of the tolerable ones. This is the teapot one, whatever that means. And aesthetic judgments don't even seem applicable, any more than it would be to ask after the specific qualities of the bell ring that made Pavlov's dog salivate. This is just sound, the specific notes in their arrangement as mere stimulation and trigger. The when of the song, nothing else, is giving it primacy, and suddenly, yet gradually, he is very much elsewhere. It is important to note that he has not been transported anywhere, as they say. Rather, his entire surrounding world has been torn down and rebuilt. And now he is in a yellowing apartment not all that much bigger than his current cell, and his six-year-old eyes are voraciously absorbing every new detail as he's trying to figure out what went wrong with the previous place in future. That must be when he first heard that song. Then, much later, 15... He has skillfully forced himself into a silver vintage Aston Martin and is driving it carefully so as not to draw attention. He takes it all the way to the extreme west side until jumping out at the last possible second to watch those six figures drop into the Hudson River, bob a second, and pitch forward and sink like a torpedo seeking the center of the earth as a grave. The sudden proliferation of apologetic bubbles, bubbles that then start immediately and exponentially disappearing as in an extinction-level event. Almost touching, this desperate final stab at respiration from something without a sword. That song is played on the car radio. What had that been? What a senseless forfeit of hard thieved money! Maybe his personal mess had suddenly seemed to him the work of inanimate privilege. So that's what he'd struck out at. Now he comes to realize it wasn't even really the teapot song that started his mental flight into these two pasts. It was just a snippet of it. The corny but effective intro riff had been spliced into a larger hole. This hole had innumerable such components that blended flowingly, like perfect consonants and ingredients that disappear in service of something new and greater. And the whole thing just went on and on without pause or loss of invention. It was an astonishing high wire act that just kept working at a ridiculously high level. Just when the listener felt a dead end possibly coming on, some heretofore unsensed element of the extant music would flower without scene into another related but distinct bounty of compelling sound. Reno was rapped, then involuntarily analytical. The instrumentation was mostly rock, lots of pop, the vocals mostly hip-hop. It was as if the strengths of disparate, mildly effective entities were being marshaled to erase all weakness. It was fun almost to the point of funny, the way all top-notch pop music is. But it was also weirdly touching. If more than a thousand songs had been combined to create one integrated hour-plus song and that song is independently great, doesn't that create a different input than usual? Here, finally, was humanity's song. The fact that, with the exception of one person, this was involuntary and unknowing collaboration only heightened the effect. The sound of giants alongside grinders, but now every barrier has dissolved and all speak with one tuneful voice. There have to be implications to something like this. If we can do this, that means at least there's a we. This is like a soundtrack to the story of hope. Yes, humanity's song. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Sergio de la Pava's book, Lost Empress, out now from Pantheon. This episode originally aired on July 15, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shannon Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive, for more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.